Hi, everyone. I'm Doug Flutie, and this is the Flutie Flakes cast. Very excited this week to have Archie Manning coming up as our guest. Uh, Archie played throughout the 70s with the New Orleans Saints and obviously dad to Eli and Peyton Manning and Cooper Manning and the up-and-coming Arch Manning and the entire family. So we'll talk a little family football as we go. How their family got started in football and all. But with mine, it was interesting that uh, we had moved to Florida and I was a little kid. I was probably five, six years old, but we started our athletic endeavors with my brother Bill coming home from school with a registration for Little League Baseball. And the second he did that, I wanted to be a part of it, but I was only farm league age. So Bill and I played together. He waited another year to to join Little League so we could play together. My father coached. My mom decides she's all in. She's down at the concession stand opening and closing every night. My sister started playing softball. My younger brother was much younger at that time and not playing yet, so he just hung out around the ball field, and that's how it all got started. My father, not an athlete at all, but once the kids got involved, he felt the need and desire to be a part of it. He'd study up, coached meticulously, um, yeah, whether it was fundamentals, drills, whatever. Uh, again, carried over with football, and it was always – us against the world. My brothers and I were always on the same teams, especially my older brother was a year older. Uh, As we got up to the high school age, my brother Bill became the starting quarterback as a junior. I was still down at the junior high school. And I was a very athletic kid doing a lot of good things at that age group and all that. But I came up as a sophomore. He was returning starting quarterback, senior captain of the team. And we got about three weeks into the season, and we struggled offensively a little bit. They moved my brother Bill to wide receiver. They moved me to quarterback. Now, he's the starting free safety. I'm a starting corner on defense. He's the starting wide receiver. Now I move into quarterback on offense. He punted. I kicked field goals and extra points and also returned kicks. So we never left the field. And we were joined at the hip. And it was amazing because, you know, here's a guy that was a returning starter, and he just – Moved over to why I'm sure it bothered him a little bit that his kid brother was taking over a quarterback, but we saw it as we could both be on the field together, and that was something that motivated us and drove us. We we went to all the camps together. We went to Glassboro State College, the quarterback receiver camp. We drive down and we go to the local camps as well. We did everything together. Uh, my younger brother, as he was coming along. Uh, Boy, we, we beat up on him a little bit. He was always the one that had to carry the ball, and we'd just make him run at us, and we'd throw him to the ground. So he was much tougher. He became – my younger brother, Darren, was every bit as athletic as I am, but a little strong – same size, same build, but much stronger and much more driven and a tough kid. And uh, he ended up playing wide receiver at, at Boston College and then moved on and played three years in the NFL and then moved up to Canada and had a Hall of Fame career in Canada as well. My older brother, Bill, became a Division I wide receiver at Brown University, but also a baseball player that uh, was all Ivy League third base, home runs, RBIs, all that kind of stuff. And we all, it was a competitive world for us growing up. We competed like crazy against each other. And it made us better. We get in the front yard, whether it's playing one-on-one, whether it's beating each other up physically and throwing each other to the ground, getting in fights and all that. But when it was a team sport, it was us against the world. The trust factor went through the roof. You 
all you had to do was make eye contact. I was very fortunate. I got to play eight games with my brother, Darren, my younger brother in Canada. We played eight games. He had eight, almost 900 yards receiving in those eight games. We had a two-game sequence where a lot of the other main wide receivers were banged up, and I had to lean on him. And everything was a hand signal, an eye contact at the line of scrimmage. He had games where he had thir- like 12, 13 catches for 275 yards, uh, you know, three or four touchdowns against Calgary. And then uh, I, I just remember the game against Saskatchewan where he was the only wide receiver on the field, and I had to go to him all day long. And we just had a blast together. And it's, there's something that gets uh, built growing up together. I can't overstate the importance of the trust factor on the field. Um, to know what someone is going to do body language wise, to know that they're giving it their all. And that's what, what in good football teams in the NFL, college, high school, you name it, when the guys next to each other trust that the other guy's going to do his job and they want to be accountable to each other and don't want to let each other down, that's when good things start to happen. And having the opportunity to play with my brothers all those years, to have the opportunity to play professionally and in the college level with my younger brother was just a dream come true. He got on the field a lot as a freshman when I was a senior, my Heisman Trophy year. Darren got in the game. Uh, he had a big game against Penn State, had about three or four big catches. Um, and at the end of the year, scored his first touchdown. I, I just lined up. They were in a two-deep coverage. I audible to three verticals. I pumped down the middle field, and I threw to the outside. And as I was releasing the ball, I realized that was Darren out there. And uh, he, he catches it and walks in the end zone for a touchdown for his first touchdown. Turn around, got the ball back right away, handoff to Darren on a little counter move, and he busted a tackle. He, two guys hit him in the hole. He spun off, went like 25 yards for a touchdown. And I was prouder of that one because that was him. That was his moment. He earned it and, uh, you know, was a big part of it. And I was so excited to have a chance to share that season with my younger brother. Um, you know, the reason I'm talking about all this is uh, our guest today is going to be Archie Manning to see what the Manning family has done to see what they've done at the NFL level. I grew up watching Archie, Archie running around the field, throwing the ball on the move. He was one of the first guys, I think he and Fran Tarkington both understood that you could retreat and give ground and still make the play. Not, they didn't necessarily always take off and run the gain yards. They moved around and ran to buy time to make the big play down the field. And I still have the vision of the one play where he had given ground maybe 30 yards and was on a dead run full speed and slung it around like a softball pitcher and threw it from his hip about 35 yards downfield to complete a pass. Very innovative, very just a headsy football player. He was stuck in a situation in New Orleans where did not win a lot of football games because of the team he played for all those years. And that also taught him lessons because uh, when, his, when it came time for his sons to play, uh, especially in the Eli situation, he wanted to make sure they were in a situation where they could be successful and uh, helped with Eli's move to the Giants. Instead of being drafted by San Diego, he ends up with the Giants and has a great career. So uh, Archie obviously took a big part of his uh, son's careers and, and had something to say and it's just really cool to have for me to have the opportunity to talk with Archie Manning, the Flutie Flakes cast, SiriusXM app, or where you get your podcasts, and be sure to rate and review. Hear what's happening around the globe on World of Basketball.
Josh Giddy. It's obviously hard coming in um, as a point guard, especially to a, to a grown man's league, because you kind of got to lead and boss older guys around, which can be hard and, and pretty daunting at times. But my teammates were great. They kind of embraced me and, um, you know, welcomed me with open arms. So it's been a really easy transition. New episodes of World of Basketball, hosted by Fran Fraschilla, are released Thursdays on the SiriusXM app and wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I'm really excited to uh, bring in my guest, Archie Manning, a guy that I grew up watching and, and just watched run all over the field and very creative on the field and slinging the ball around. And Arch, I, I remember one play where you gave ground about 20, 30 yards, slung one kind of underhand sidearm down the field. I, uh, I wouldn't say I modeled my game after you, but I love the way you played the game. But everybody else nowadays knows you as uh, Eli and Peyton's dad and, and all that has gone on with the with the Manning family and the NFL. And so Arch, what's uh, taking up most of your time these days? Well, Doug, I actually, I'm, I'm not real busy. Um, I've been sticking pretty close to home here in New Orleans. Um, uh, we were up in Oxford, Mississippi last week. Uh, Eli and his family were there. They had a little spring break and got to see, he's got four kids. So hadn't seen that group of grandkids uh, very much at all during, during the pandemic. So uh, I stay somewhat busy here in uh, New Orleans. Uh, still have some involvement with some some companies here and do some do some marketing work. Um, I would like to be playing more golf. I'm about half crippled. Don't get around too good, but I go out there and, and uh, mess around a little bit. And uh, but pretty close to home. I, I was reminded I was doing a Zoom the other day with this. It was kind of a, a corporate thing, and the guy asked me what I'd been doing. And I told him it reminded me of um, when Bum Phillips retired, he went to his ranch in Texas. And after about a year, somebody wanted to interview him. And they said, Bum, what do you, what do, you do every day? He said, I don't do nothing and I don't start till noon. So that's, that's kind of what I am these days. We've all heard about the Arch. Uh, are, there, are there others on the way? And, and what's Arch's situation now? Olivia and I have been married, uh, it was 50 years in, in January. And uh, we, of course, uh, blessed to have three, three sons. Um, people know a little bit about Peyton and Eli. Our oldest son, Cooper, is two years older than Peyton. And uh, so we have nine grandchildren. Cooper has the three oldest uh, grandchildren, May Manning, is a senior, uh, Sacred Heart High School here. I'll brag on May a little bit. Uh, it was MVP in the state volleyball tournament where they won a state championship. But she's um, finishing up, plays tennis, uh, basketball, and volleyball. And she'll be a freshman at the University of Virginia uh, next year. So she's, she's really excited about that. Um, and then Arch is a sophomore uh, at Newman High School here where his father and his uncles played. Uh, Arch is a three-sport guy. They just got beat last week in the finals of state championship in basketball. Got beat by four, and um, now he's running a little track. And he has a younger brother, Hyde. Uh, Doug, we finally have an offensive lineman in the Manning family. Hyde is a center guard, and uh, he's a freshman and uh, snaps it good on the shotgun and um, kind of a – Kind of got that meathead mentality, like you know, like those offensive linemen do. So uh, that's that's the oldest grandchildren. Peyton has ten-year-old twins, and Eli has four, three girls and a boy, ten, eight, six, and two. You are going to be watching ball games for the next twenty years, just running from field to field. <laughs> 
What is it about family? Like I, I, I talked a little in my monologue about my brothers and I growing up and playing together. Is it, is it that the dads are all hands-on? Do we push the kids harder? Is it the competitiveness between the kids? What makes it happen for families in football? I think in our case, they were just around it. Um, didn't, didn't push them. Um, my dad never, never did that to me. He supported me. Um, but with my guys, if, if, if we're going to go play catch or play pitch or something, uh, they had to ask me. I didn't kind of initiate it. But when they started playing sports, um, you know, I, I wanted to be there. I did. I tried to kind of get on the top row and keep my mouth shut and um, uh, just enjoy and support them. But they were around it. You know, I was playing ball here in New Orleans. And, um, Doug, I don't know if they did that during your day. I don't know if they did it as much when Eli and Peyton played. But back in those days – it was kind of common. We'd take our kids on Saturday morning, you know, it was just kind of a walk through just, uh, but they played, you know, they started with the little league playing basketball, playground league, all these crummy gymnasiums. And then um, didn't really do football. Uh, it wasn't really around. I wasn't that big on tackle football at a young age. And they, and they didn't have flag back then, uh, which is a great flag. Football is awesome. Uh, my grandkids ball. My grandkids have all done that, um, but they, you know, kind of went from sport to sport and and liked it. So uh, just just around it, yeah, they were around it a lot. How about the moments? I, I you know, I had some nephews that played Division One ball, and um, even when they were in Little League, and that name was on their back, or whether it was uh, recreation basketball, whatever, the the heckling they would get and the tough the mental toughness that they had to develop because of the name on the back of their jersey do you see that with the grandkids yeah a little bit it wasn't too bad at at 12 13 14 wasn't too bad you know most of the competition was here in town just play another playground that type of thing when i really saw it when they started started playing high school and uh i guess football and and go on the road um you know of course I was retired, and uh, by then we won. We'd go, be in the stands, and yeah, they 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 caught a little flack, and uh, seemed like they were a little more of a, you know, Peyton Peyton was a quarterback, Cooper was a wide receiver, and then Eli was a quarterback, so they were a little bit of a target back there sometimes. But they they kind of dealt with it. Just kind of we tried to low key it, not make a big deal about it, and and just and just just handle it. So uh, your grandson Arch, this is Cooper's son. Uh, he's been touted as the number one sophomore right now in high school football. Arch got to, um, was really fortunate, uh, Doug. Um, he got to play as a freshman. Um, his uncles didn't do that. They were the same high school, kind of the same program. Now, this isn't a, there's five divisions. There's, there's five classifications in Louisiana. And uh, Newman is a private school here in New Orleans, real strong academic school. And we're 2A, 2A. So it's not the... You know, it's 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 not at the at, at the top. It's two A. They graduate probably around eighty, eighty five, ninety kids each year. You know, in a, in a senior class, they do have a a good program, good athletic program, a lot of participation. Uh, more kids go out for football now than they did back when their uncles and their dad played. You know, where it was probably forty five or fifty back then. Now it's probably seventy or seventy five kids go out. Uh, and they've, they've been pretty successful the last, last few years. But uh, he did get to play as a freshman. And um, they, they throw it around. Coach likes to spread it out and throw it. 
and he had a, you know, I thought it was real advantageous for him. He had a senior receiver. He had a kid coming back, really smart, talented. He's a he's a freshman this year at Dartmouth on the football team at Dartmouth. So he, he was a bright kid, and um, gosh, that was great for, for Arch as, as a freshman. You know, kind of going through the ropes to have a have a senior receiver like that who he threw to a lot. So that kind of got him off to a good start. And um, I think they went probably nine and one in the regular season, won a playoff game and got beat uh, in, in the playoffs by a better team. And this past year, we talked about it with the with the pandemic, their season was cut to eight games. But they got to play those eight and then played two playoff games. And uh, they weren't as quite productive Offensively, kind of spread it around a little more among four or five receivers. Didn't really have that that one guy. Although one of his receivers who will be back next year has committed to LSU uh, next year, so he's he's got a good target there. That's that's pretty unusual for Newman to a you know to have um, Division One players. Although Odell Beckham did go to Newman, so he wasn't bad. So you're throwing these names out, and you're talking about LSU and a, another kid up at Dartmouth. I was the f- I think I was the first scholarship kid out of my school and my public high school in about 15 years. So uh, he's got some guys around him, but, but like you said, it's probably, it's not the powerhouse situation. So when does he have to make decisions for college and all that? He gets offers already. You know, it's so different now. It's just so different. When um, Cooper and Peyton and Eli came around, I don't remember it even being a, a, a factor until about their junior year, you know, when some coaches started coming to practice and they're getting letters. Letters were a big deal, you know, letters. Were, I remember with Peyton, you know, you get the letters, God, you get just, I'm sure Doug, I'm sure you're the same way, you know, dozens of letters a day. And he finally got to where he would kind of only open the, the handwritten notes, you know, from the coaches because everything else was just kind of kind of standard stuff. Uh, they don't really do much of that anymore. Social media is, is is out there, and I think, you know, they text them, and they've been lately been having Zoom calls and all that kind of stuff. But it's changed. Um, gosh, they started, you know, kind of contacting him in eighth grade, and offers started coming in. You know, his eighth grade, ninth grade year, and Cooper just kind of um, didn't deal with that. So we're not going, we're not going to go there, and. Uh, Kind of the theme was kind of let him be a freshman. Uh, didn't really do any post game interviews or any media stuff, and he's opened up now a little bit to that. You know where he does some interviews, and actually has been doing some Zoom calls with some coaches, some head coaches, and some offensive coordinators. Because now it seems like what happens is they start falling. You know, you got all these quarterbacks all over the country, and you got the Archers, the class of twenty three. You got the class right now, the class of 22. A lot of those guys are committing now, you know, and it's not their senior year yet. It's a, it's, it's pretty common with quarterbacks. They, they kind of find their spot and commit their junior year. And I guess they do it maybe to keep some others, you know, from loading up and going there. So it's, 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 it really has changed. It's changed a lot. Yeah, I got a couple of letters from a couple of schools, and that was about it. I ended up getting a scholarship offer after my senior year because a couple other kids wanted that BC wanted went elsewhere, and they were scrambling around. I was very fortunate to get one Division One. So when I got letters, that was a big deal. I remember I got a letter from Georgia Tech and one from Notre Dame that they probably didn't even know who I was. It was just a form letter sent out, but I thought it was a big deal. You're still involved with uh, the Manning Academy, Passing Academy? 
and uh, how's that going? And what year is this for? Well, this is our last last June would have been our 25th year. We started that camp. Um, Peyton was uh, going into his junior year at, at Tennessee. Um, Peyton Cooper was uh, Cooper had gone to Ole Miss as a scholarship receiver, but had a spinal cord problem and they had to give up football. But he was he was still at Ole Miss and. Gosh, I guess Eli was in the seventh uh, or eighth grade when we first started. He was a camper, and um, we we started out at Tulane. We moved over to Hammond, Louisiana, a little school called Southeast Louisiana. We kind of outgrew that, and we uh, go to went to Nichols State, which is um, about an hour away from New Orleans, and um, it's um, a small school, but with a lot of a lot of grass on their campus that we that we use. So. 25 years we've been doing this, and um, we grew where we max out usually about 1,200 kids, quarterbacks and receivers, max out about 1,200 campers, and have a staff of about 80 coaches, high school and small college, and then another 40 college quarterbacks. We uh, make up our staff with where the college quarterbacks come in and coach the kids, but have a good time working out. and. So it's it's been so much fun, and we didn't get to have it last summer, as you can understand. But our plans are we backed it up a little bit this year. Mid-June, July 15 through 18, we, um, we plan on going with it. We think things are going to be so much better uh, around the country by then. It, we'll be able to pretty much go to uh, normal and, and have our 25th year. But it's a lot of fun, a lot of fun. I, I just I picture the young quarterbacks, the college quarterbacks that get, that get to work at the camp, to be able to rub elbows with the Manning family and Eli and and Peyton and the maturity level. You know, the, the mental aspect of the game is such a big deal. Yeah, those kids are so great. The college kids, well, they all they're all sponge. They come in and what we try to do. Sure, they coach our our high school kids. And boy, our high school kids just love that, you know, and we rotate and we move them around. But, you know, you can imagine when you got a high school kid here and in one drill a few years ago, say he's got Colt McCoy and another drill, he's got Andrew Luck or another drill, he's got Sam Bradford and, you know, just rotating those guys around. That's really been a fun part of it. But Peyton and Eli, I think what's really given credibility to our camp and, in 24 years, they've never missed a minute. They're there 100% of the time. So um, they try to gather just the college quarterbacks oh, for about an hour and a half, first afternoon, and then the second afternoon, have about a two-hour session with them, with them throwing. And Peyton and Eli kind of run the whole show there, you know, out on the field. And, and then they have some night meetings um, where they, I don't, you know, they don't even let me in those meetings. I don't know what goes on, but they, they seem to like it. it, it Doug, you've been around Peyton enough, you know, he kind of gets down and down and dirty with them and tell, tells them how it is. And they seem to like that. And uh, it's just great kids. Though. All of them are just, they're just so much fun to be around. And then it's so much fun to follow them as they go through their, you know, their next, their last year or two of college after you've kind of gotten to know them a little bit. Yeah, that's got to be the rewarding side of it for you guys to see these kids that go on and do well and, and, and move to the next level and, and to see the success. And I want to shift gears a second, Arch, because I was talking with Warren Moon a couple of weeks ago and, and we started talking CFL days and we had some stories about some of the locker room facilities. When you think back to the 70s, let's say even early 70s and you're what's the worst locker room or the, the, the most? <laughs> hey, the, funny you would ask me that because... 
I saw you play. I believe I saw you play. Was your first game in Buffalo? Um, would that have been about what? 90... 98. 90, yeah, 98. 98. 98. Y'all played in Indianapolis. Early, I won't say first game, first game of the year. But anyway, a uh, hundred years ago, fifty to be exact, I, I got drafted by the New Orleans Saints, and I was late going to camp. In those days, I had the college All Star game. Oh yeah. Well, I hadn't signed my contract, so I didn't go. Well, uh, but we played six preseason games in those days, and so I signed and went in. And the, our first game is that week. I was out at practice three days. And our first game that week was in Buffalo, and we played in War Memorial State. <laughs> oh my gosh! It was. I can remember going upstairs. You had to. Go, I mean, a lot of stairs to go to the visiting dressing room. Gosh, Dennis Shaw was their quarterback. Uh, O.J. Simpson was in his third year as a running back. Uh, Lou Saban was the coach. But that was a – you know, of course, they, they built the stadium shortly after that. That was a pretty raunchy uh, locker room right there. Going up those old stairs, rickety stairs, and uh, one much space in there. And, of course, in those days, playing six preseason games in your first one, you had a lot of players. You know, I, I don't remember the number, but, I mean, probably close to – 70, 70 or 80 and all crowded into a locker room because you hadn't had any cuts yet, you know. So you get to know your teammates pretty well. Was it Pittsburgh at uh, Trevers that you had to walk upstairs to or ramp or something to get the locker Yeah, you sure did. And then, what, Doug, in those days, we played in a bunch of baseball stadiums. So I can remember we went to Baltimore, so we, we played in Memorial Stadium there. I remember telling our equipment manager, I was an old baseball guy. I said, I want to, we were going to be in the Orioles locker room. I said, I want to be in Brooks Robinson's locker. Okay. But you just find Brooks Robinson and put me there. And then let's see where baseball stadiums. Oh my God. Wow. Tiger stadium in Detroit. Tiger stadium. Now that was, it was old. It was, uh, I did have the great fortune to play in Yankee stadium in that, um, we played, I think it was 1972. The giants were playing their home games in Yankee Stadium, my, my roommate and I, Bobby Scott, my, my backup quarterback, we skipped pregame meal, caught a cab, went out to Yankee Stadium, did the monuments, did the walk the field, did did the whole thing. Because I was like, you know, big Yankee fan grow, growing up in the 50s. So that was cool. Um, uh, the One of the worst fields was Candlestick. I, I'm, I'm sure you played <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, played there. God, it was awful. <laughs> It was awful. And then we'd play early in the year, we play in those baseball stadiums, and they still had the infield. Mm-hmm. So we called our own plays in those days. You really had to call plays around the dirt, you know, around the – because, you know, you put your receiver, you put your running back in a, in a bad spot there, and, and you're calling your plays. So it was a factor in, t- in the early part of the season while baseball was still playing. I remember playing in Oakland and um, Alameda. We played in the – Another bad one was the Astrodome. Astrodome was terrible. We always played there in preseason where they had the infield. It was terrible. The seams on that AstroTurf, in the USFL days, one of the receivers, Scott McGee, laid out for a pass that Jim Kelly threw, long ball, caught it in his hands and slid on the turf, and his face mask caught a seam from the pitcher's mound. And he did a flip, flipped right over. He was just sliding on the turf. His head stuck. It's amazing he didn't snap his neck. He was fine. You talk about Baltimore Memorial Stadium. I was in the CFL, and Baltimore had a CFL franchise for a couple of years, so I got to go down there and play. My parents were from Baltimore, 
And we probably, well, they played more games after that. But in the last year that that stadium was used, I played a CFL football game in Baltimore Memorial Stadium. And I did the same thing. I was asking, which one's Brooks Robinson's? Where's, you know, (laughs) and it was, by then it was really trash. What was that? That was mid nineties. So much yeah. fun. So how about, how about guys smoking in the locker room? Did you guys have a bunch of that? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I report, I, I got drafted by the, by the Saints, and the draft back in those days was in January. So that was 50 years ago this past January. And it wasn't much offseason. No, they didn't do much. Most of, the guys, most of their players had offseason jobs, you know. It wasn't, it wasn't any structured offseason workouts. But we had a mini camp. Uh, I guess it was about May. But it was just the quarterbacks. They had four quarterbacks came in. And so uh, there was Ed Hargett, who had been an A&M quarterback. He had been the backup to Billy Kilmer the year before in New Orleans. And then they had a guy named Steve Ramsey, who wound up playing with the Broncos. And then um, I was the first-round pick, so I'm coming in. And Bobby Scott, who wound up being from Tennessee, I'd played against him. He was a 14th round that day. We were the four quarterbacks, and I, and so I went back. I was new and married, and we just said, well, how are the other quarterbacks? I said, well, two of them smoke. And I, it just blew my mind, you know, just putting on our shorts and shoes, getting ready to go out the first workout, two of them. I won't name, I won't name them, but anyway, they lit up, and um, that was a surprise. And then as you got on through, uh, you know, got to training camp that year, long training camp because you play six preseason games, and then – Time to get down the regular season, but a lot of guys. Well, I'd say, you know, normally if we had 40 guys in the dressing room, nine or ten of them smoked. And halftime, you, you know, you couldn't you couldn't see the chalkboard, you know, for smoke <laughs> going everywhere. But we had a kicker. I guarantee you, he smoked a pack before the game. He just sat over there and smoked one right after the other. Charlie Dirk, he just smoked. And in the halftime, he'd hit about three. It's as quick as he could – uh, there's there's video of Lenny Dawson on the sideline smoking a butt, lighting up. I played my rookie year in the USFL. My first pro game, and I've told this story, is I come in the locker room. There's eight guys sitting in the corner smoking. That was 85. Just different times. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> I, you know, and, and like you said, they were six preseason games. We always, or they in those days, used preseason to get in shape. Like you said, there wasn't a lot of off-season stuff going on. Uh, I, I could talk forever, especially the old days. I love it. Um, well, it was a lot of fun. I, it's fun to talk talk about old days, and I, I admired your career so much. I'm like so many people around America. I saw that play down in um, in Miami, and then followed you, um, you know, as you, Canadian League, USFL, but uh, your days in the NFL. Always, just always admired the way you. I used to tell my boys to take care of their business. I always admired the way you took care of your business and the, the way you played. So it's it's a real thrill. And a, pleasure for me to be on with you. Hello, everyone. This is Bruce Murray, and I'd love you to join me on my podcast, Going Long, where every week we talk to the sports stars themselves, like NFL Hall of Famer Brett Favre. I was probably better at baseball than I was football. And the people that love them, like TV legend George Went. I thought about changing to be a Cup fan as a career move. And sports casting icon Linda Cohen. I never thought I'd still be doing it at this point in time. You can listen to Going Long every Thursday on the SiriusXM app and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again to Archie Manning for joining me and uh, being a guest. This is, I tell you, to have the opportunity to do this uh, podcast and to be talking with Roger Staubach, formerly uh, with Warren Moon and everyone else, uh, Kurt Warner, 
Brett, this has been so much fun for me. This is, I'm like a little kid in a candy shop when I get an opportunity to talk to guys that I idolized. But right now, uh, I'm down in Florida, fired up because we've had great waves the last two to three days. Uh, Gronk and I were talking about swimming with sharks. I was out there for two days, did not see a shark, got about four to five hours of surfing in per day. But I did see a pot of dolphins swimming by, and I caught a wave, and I was paddling back out, and there was a dolphin in a wave. And it was riding the wave. Sometimes they jump in the waves and kind of surf the wave. So I spun and I surfed the wave and I had the dolphin about five to 10 feet away from me on my right. And we just cruised the wave together. And right at the end, the dolphin leaped out and over the back. Kind of fun. Let's get into some Twitter questions and get after that a little bit. This week, a lot of questions and a lot of uh, concerns about the future of the CFL. People ask, what do you think is going to happen with the league? As there's been a lot of speculation, they can maybe collaborate with the XFL. And people want to know your thoughts on what could happen. First of all, I'd love to see the CFL continue. Uh, they, they obviously stopped playing due to coronavirus, and that is a league that is contingent on their uh, ticket sales. They, every year, they're fighting to make pay payroll with their ticket sales. They don't have a big contract, TV contract, all that. That's not where their money comes. Their money comes from sales in the stadium and ticket sales and concession, and that's where they make their money. So they have to be playing. And when you take a year off, it puts them in debt. That puts them behind the eight ball. And, uh, you know, I'm sure in a situation where franchises have to declare bankruptcy, um, to have the opportunity to have the XFL and the money of the rock step in, uh, Dwayne Johnson, actually Dwayne Johnson played with the Calgary Stampeders. He was in camp with us, uh, one year there, uh, before he, he made the smart decision to go into wrestling and really make a career for himself. Um, the Rock and the XFL, a new XFL, is in talks, and it's it's exciting. It's it's a possibility to uh, jump borders, have teams in the states, have teams in Canada. Um, maybe they're even talking about potentially Mexico. Um, I think, for me, from a selfish standpoint, I'd love to see the CFL continue as an entity and be the three-down football because it would protect my legacy and the legacy of some great names of guys that have played up there and things that have gone on in Canada. That's a 150-year-old league. But if it means the survival of the league and continuing to have teams in Calgary, Saskatchewan, Winnipeg, uh, it's, it may be a necessity. It sounds to me in some of the talks that I've had with people that this may happen, that it's a very serious possibility. And if it does, it does. The Prairies take a lot of pride, uh, whether it's Winnipeg, Saskatchewan, or Calgary, about CFL football. Uh, you know, Toronto and Vancouver love to compare themselves a lot with the states, and I'm sure they wouldn't mind jumping into some four-down football and playing against U.S. teams to prove that that they belong. But um, some of those Prairie cities will miss the CFL rules and the CFL teams if this if this happens. All right, Doug, another response we got this week, and I know you've talked about this before in the past, as your son um, had autism, you talked about changing teams and how, how difficult that could be at times, you know, considering your family. One person asked, I have a question about autism awareness, uh, currently putting together a Twitter fundraiser in April, and just any suggestions on how I could create awareness? Well, the number one thing is, is reaching people and how do you do that? And, and Twitter, uh, virtual thing, we've learned this year how powerful virtual events can be and things online. It's amazing to me how many people are willing to give and want to be involved. And when you do things virtually, when you do it online, it's an easy way for them to get involved without having to throw on a jacket and tie, get in the car, drive to an event, and 
then turn into a donation that night. They can just you know, pop on, click on and, and help you out a little bit, feel like they're a part of it without maybe inconveniencing themselves. So it's a great idea. Um, you can always reach out to our people at our foundation at flutiefoundation.org. Be more than willing to help you, you know, whether it's in how you line it up, how you set up your events, getting endorsements, getting uh, sponsorship, getting people on board before you start your events is the most important. Get out there and, and work it a little bit and get your sponsorship money. That will, that will guarantee you a net profit and that will also get some people that really care involved. All right, Doug, and last one here. We'll do this every week as we have been. Uh, tweet your questions or comments at Doug Flutie. Uh, and this one kind of, you talked a lot about it with Gronk last week. The, uh, I guess the creation of Flutie Flakes. This person wants to know, how did the project get started? Are you surprised at the impact it has made all these years later? Yeah, well, Gronk and I were talking about it and we decided we, we needed something to feed the sharks when we're out in the water and play with the sharks. So we were going to just give them Flutie Flakes because they we heard they like sugar. I don't know. Uh, when I came down from Toronto, to Buffalo, uh, that off season, I hadn't even, I don't even think I'd signed with Buffalo yet. I did a marketing deal with PLB Sports, the company in Pittsburgh that had done a few other products for other players. And the most units, I think Mario Lemieux sold 250,000 units of a salsa, maybe it was. And they said, you know, if we can hit 200,000 units or something, it's a success. And we're like, okay, this would be cool. Well, what do you like? I'm a frozen pizza guy. Let's do frozen pizza. You know, that's what I, and they come back to me with, well, the profit margin on a breakfast cereal would be better for us. So why don't we do that? Yeah. What kind of cereal? Like? I like frosted flakes. All right. We'll do a frosted type flake and we'll, we'll do that and we'll call it fluty flakes. Okay. So it starts, it's supposed to come out before the season starts. Of course, everything's running late and behind. It doesn't happen. I wind up signing in Buffalo. The season starts, no fluty flakes. I'm a backup quarterback. Uh, about four or five weeks into the season, I become the starter. And at that time is the release of the Flutie Flakes. They come out. It was just the perfect storm. Happened to hit. We sell over 2 million boxes. We sell over, we've sold close to, I, I believe it's over 5 million boxes as of now. Because uh, we did some anniversaries, uh, 10 and 20 year anniversary editions. And uh, it was just amazing. What we did was give a percentage to the uh, foundation. And I decided uh, when it all got going that I'd put all the money that came my way to the foundation. So we've raised near $2 million strictly off of Flutie Flakes towards the Doug Flutie Jr. Foundation for Autism. Again, thanks for listening. Uh, this is the Flutie Flakes cast. I'm Doug Flutie. And be sure to download at SiriusXM app or wherever you get your podcast. And be sure to rate and review. Thanks for listening. SiriusXM Podcasts.